Now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 6, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see, and another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Then he opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this book in which you unveiled to your servant John the mysteries of history, the mysteries of our future worship and glory and rest with you, all of these things that come together in this book. And we see you, Father, as the one who sends our Savior Jesus as a mighty conqueror. So may he conquer us today by his loving dominion. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would understand these things rightly, and that we would explore and delve deeper and deeper into the mysteries of your wisdom and of your character and of your goodness and grace. So, Father, strengthen us with this time together in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was a little worried when I pulled out of the driveway this morning, having, as we all have, lost an hour of sleep. It's always hard to get the blood flowing on a morning of the time change and get everybody engaged. But after John picked those blood pumping songs to get the stuff working in your brain, and then we're going to talk about the four horsemen uh, from Revelation chapter six. Uh, if this doesn't get your blood pumping, you're, you're not alive. So uh, even with uh, our loss. So we pray we, uh, we make good use of this time. Joseph Unwin was a historian who lived in the early part of the 1900s. He was an English scholar and historian. He served at both Oxford and Cambridge University. Over his life, he compiled seven large volumes on the study of the effects of, of monogamy and promiscuity on the integrity of societies. In 1934, he summarized those seven large volumes in a handy, pocket-sized, 600-page book titled simply Sex and Culture. And recently, a review of that book has been making the rounds, and some of you may have seen it. Now, I haven't read the seven volumes, and I haven't read the 600-page book, though I'd love to get my hands on it. It's, of course, hard to get. But the review that's making the rounds is incredible, and it's full of great quotes, and it's full of good things to uh, think on and, and to reflect on. Unwin examined in his study, in his lifetime of research, Unwin examined the data from 86 advanced civilizations to see if there is any correlation between sexual freedom 
and the flourishing of cultures. And he discovered that time and time again, increased restraint before marriage and after marriage, both self-discipline before marriage and after marriage, always leads to the flourishing of a culture. Conversely, increased sexual freedom always leads to the collapse of a culture and always does it within three generations. The single most important correlation with the success of a civilization was whether premarital chastity was required and the most powerful situation, uh, civilization, the most powerful civilizations are those where premarital chastity was coupled with absolute monogamy as far as a social institution and ex expectation. Now, certainly in every place there is sin, in every place there are exceptions. I'm talking about the societal institution and expectation and Unwin's research was, was focused on what is the, what is the standard. And so cultures that retain premarital chastity and monogamy, faithfulness in marriage, cultures that retain this combination for at least three generations always excel in every other area. Literature, art, science, architecture, engineering, agriculture, you name it, the culture flourishes when there is fidelity and integrity of the marriage covenant, where strict chastity and monogamy are abandoned, rational thinking also disappears within three generations. And if total sexual freedom is embraced by a culture, that civilization collapses within three generations. It, it becomes inert. It's characterized by people who have little interest in anything outside of their own wants or needs. And when you get to that point, the culture is conquered or taken over by another culture with greater integrity. It works the other way too. Changes, reformations, recoveries of monogamy and chastity, that takes about three generations to take effect. Now, if you're like me, when you hear those things, you're doing the math in your head and you're thinking of our own society. You're thinking, okay, Unwin said uh, a, a, a collapse of fidelity takes about three generations to work its way out into the collapse of the civilization. So let's see, we had the sexual revolution of the late 60s and the, and the 70s, so there was that generation, and there was my generation, some of y'all's generation, Generation X, and then we have the millennial generation. Are, are, are we technically on the second or the third generation? How close are we to doomsday for our culture? The good news is that we don't have complete societal capitulation into promiscuity. There are a vast number of faithful Christians who are preserving our world, who are preserving our civilization through their worship and obedience and faithfulness and fidelity. So, so I don't know what variable that introduces into the formula, if any, but I'm, I'm interested in reading more of what he wrote, and it's fascinating. This analysis is fascinating nonetheless, because this is consistent with what we see in the scriptures. A society's Unbelief and idolatry starts a countdown to destruction. Remember back in Genesis, God told Abraham that he was going to send Abraham's descendants into a land that was not their own. They're going to be strangers in a strange land. They're going to be in a place that's not theirs for 400 years. 
before he will bring them out with great substance and give them the land of promise. And, and he said, why did God do that? He said, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, indicating that the Canaanite nations were on a clock and they're going to either repent and listen to the gospel that Abraham had preached. They're going to worship Yahweh at the altars that Abraham had set up or they're going to waste that 400 years in rebellion. Well, you know what happened is that, of course, they wasted those 400 years. The, the iniquity of the Amorites was, came, to, came to full fruition. And when their time is up, the priests blow the horns and the walls of Jericho fall flat and the land is, is conquered by Israel. The, the civilizations with weak integrity were conquered by the, the faithful civilization, the stronger civilization. Many generations later, Jonah goes to Nineveh and he says, yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, of course, what happens is Nineveh repents. Everyone uh, confesses their sins in sackcloth and ashes. And so they hit, they hit snooze on their doomsday clock for a short time. There was, there was a time of peace uh, in in Assyria and in Nineveh. But of course they lapse back into their idolatry and so we get to the prophet Nahum. Nahum comes along, he declares final judgment against, against Assyria and Nineveh and then Babylon conquers Nineveh. Um, unbelief, rebellion, idolatry set a, a timer. They set a, a clock on which judge, uh, judgment will come when, when the clock when the time runs out. Now, in the Gospels, uh, we see Jesus come to Jerusalem and he declares her judgment within the space of one generation. At the beginning of John's Gospel, we see at the outset of Jesus' ministry, he goes to Jerusalem and he comes to the temple to inspect it. Is this place a place of faithful worship or is this temple racked with corruption? Is it a place of obedience or is it a place of sedition and rebellion? Of course, Jesus comes to the temple and he finds that it's a den of thieves and he symbolically uh, cleanses the temple. He interrupts the activity of the temple for a short time and his, his, his action there at the temple is a sign, it's a warning of the coming destruction of the temple if Jerusalem does not repent, if Jerusalem does not receive her Messiah. If she does not receive Messiah, the temple is going to be destroyed. The city will be wiped out with it. The entire society will collapse. Now that happens at the beginning of his ministry in John's gospel. In Matthew and Mark and Luke, Jesus comes back to the temple. At the end of his ministry, after his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus goes straight to the temple and he does the same thing again. He comes to the temple. Has anything changed? Has the city reformed or is this still a place of corruption and thievery and wickedness? Well, there was a time for repentance, but that time was wasted and unbelief has multiplied at the temple. And after Jesus goes in once again and interrupts the activity of the temple, after he drives out the money changers, after he declares that this temple will be destroyed, he tells his disciples, look around. He says, not one stone here is going to be left on another. And his disciples ask him the question every one of us in this room would ask him, when? When is this going to take place? So Jesus takes him out to the Mount of Olives and he talks about wars and strife between nations and famine and pestilence and persecution and earthquakes and political collapse. 
Those are the things that are coming, he says, and he answers their questions as to the timing. And he says, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place, the things I just listed. What is Jesus? Is Jesus saying the clock is ticking. The time is running out. The doom of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem is sure and it is imminent. It is coming quickly. The slide into judgment is well underway. These people standing there are going to see the end of their world come and their society wiped out. The generation that rejected Jesus is going to see the end of these things. Well, in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13 and in Luke 21, Jesus gives us these lists of the signs of the end that will take place in that generation. Wars, strife between nations, famine, pestilence, persecutions, earthquakes, and political collapse. Now we turn over to the book of Revelation. And John has been brought up into the heavenly courts. He has witnessed the worship of heaven. A book with seven seals is presented that no one is worthy to open except for the lamb who was slain. He was worthy. And now as the lamb ascends to the father's throne and takes the book out of his hands, the lamb begins to open the seals of the book. And the Lord Jesus shows John from heaven's perspective, the sequence of events that he talked about on the Mount of Olives in Matthew and Mark and Luke. The same things that Jesus said were going to lead up to the destruction of the temple, lead up to the end of the city of Jerusalem. These things were to be witnessed by and experienced by the generation that rejected Jesus. And so the very same things we're going to read about in, in Revelation chapter 6 are the things we've already read about three times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what are they? Wars, strife between nations, famine, pestilence, persecutions, earthquakes, and political collapse. The same things are seen in Revelation 6 that we see in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. So whenever we study the book of Revelation, we have the same question that the disciples asked Jesus on the Mount of Olives. We open the book of Revelation, we say, when will these things be? When do these things take place? Has this already happened? Are we still waiting on it to happen? What chronology are we dealing with here? Well, as we saw last week, whenever we look up into heaven, with whether Isaiah takes us there, whether Ezekiel takes us there, whenever we look into heaven, uh, we're seeing our future because Jesus prayed uh, that, that uh, heaven and earth would be made one, that uh, things would be done on earth as they are in heaven. That was Jesus's prayer. Heaven's realities are the anchor point for our future that determines everything that comes before. As we saw last week, history rushes toward a future when God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that we have ascended with John into the heavenlies for the next several chapters, we're going to get heaven's perspectives on the things that, that throughout the book, John is told are very near. These things are coming very quickly over and over and over. These things are imminent for the churches and the people named in the first chapters of, of Revelation. Also, however, they are signs and warnings for any generation, for any civilization that rejects the Lord Jesus. Any civilization that, re that embraces death uh, can expect strife and famine and pestilence and persecution and earthquakes and political collapse. Everyone, everyone who rejects Jesus can expect that, as, as Unwin uh, illustrated in, in his work. 
And also embedded in this, however, are promises and messages of hope for the faithful within the context of societal collapse. And all of these are relevant for every age. So let's begin to look at the things that happen, the things that unfold when Jesus starts opening the seven seals of this book that was in the Father's hand. Chapter 6 gives us the first six seals. There's a break, and then we won't get to the seventh um, probably until week after next. The seventh comes after a while. There's a break in chapter 7, and then we'll come back for the last seal. The first four seals that are opened that we just read about a few minutes ago show us some of the most familiar, iconic images of the book of Revelation, the four horsemen, so-called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We see a rider on a red horse, one on a I'm sorry, a a rider on a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse. Now, Revelation isn't the first time we've seen these four horses. Back in Zechariah 6, we read about God's four chariots pulled by white, red, black, and, and pale horses who go back and forth across the earth patrolling creation. In Zechariah and in Revelation, these, these horses and the horsemen are God's agents of history. They're one of God's means of working out his purposes on the earth and his means of bringing judgment and, 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 um, and, and change on disobedient nations. They're not just running loose, going wherever they want to go. They aren't under demonic control. These are not demons riding these horses. They're under the control of Jesus. He summons them. They come and they go where, they, where he wishes. So as Jesus opens these seals, he sends these four horsemen out to accomplish the ends he promised his saints would happen. Way back on the, on the Mount of Olives, he, he sends them out to accomplish the things that he said would happen to avenge his saints who have been martyred and to vindicate himself. He sends these tribulations and judgments on the generation that crucified him. The people that are going to see these things is the generation who had the opportunity to accept him as king and Messiah, but who instead said, we want no king but Caesar. Caesar is our king. And so on that generation, these things will will take place and these things will fall. So the first seal, uh, back to uh, the beginning of Revelation 6. I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. The first seal is open and one of the living creatures call out to the horseman and says, come. Each rider, you'll notice, is called by a different one of the creatures, one of the heavenly creatures that's before the throne of God. You know, one of them has a face like a lion. One of them has a face like an ox. One of them has the face of a man. And one of them has a face of an eagle. And these four living creatures each call to one of the horsemen. Now, we could think and ponder what, uh, which one matches up. And I think probably the lion called out to the first and maybe the ox called out to the second, maybe the man the third and the eagle the fourth. But the scriptures don't tell us. So we could... um, we could match those up and think, how do these fit thematically? Uh, however, one of them calls each of the horsemen. And so uh, one of the creatures call out and we see a crowned rider on a white horse carrying a bow. Well, who is this rider? Who is he? Over in Revelation 19, 11, we see 
Jesus crowned and sitting on a white horse. Here the rider has a bow, there the rider has a sword proceeding from his mouth by which he conquers. It's no trouble for me to understand and imagine and trust that this rider on the white horse, the first rider, is Jesus is Jesus himself. Here Jesus comes with a bow to conquer in judgment. Later he will come uh, wielding the sword which proceeds from his mouth, the, the witness and the power of his word. And it shouldn't be difficult to see Jesus as both the sent and the sender, because we've already seen this in the Gospels. Jesus tells his, uh, his disciples, he says, I will come to you. And then he says later, the comforter will come to you. And he's talking about the same thing. Not that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the same person of the Trinity, not at all. What he's saying is Jesus is going to come to his disciples through the person of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, also we ascend to meet with and eat with Jesus and, and fellowship with him. So it's through the Spirit that Jesus sends his presence. Jesus sends the Spirit, and by the Spirit, he sends himself. Jesus is both the sender and the sent one. And so Jesus opens the seal, and then he takes the lead. He is the first rider on the white horse. And it's very similar to the picture that we get in Psalm 45 about the Messiah. Uh, Psalm 45 gives us his image of Messiah as the conqueror with a bow. Um, listen to Psalm 45. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in thy splendor and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride on victoriously. So we know he's mounted. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Over there in Revelation 19, he's called faithful and true and righteous. Let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. The book was in the right hand of the Father. Thine arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemy. So he has a bow. And that's a picture of the Messiah riding out to conquer with a bow. So Jesus is the first rider on the white horse and he leads the procession out to battle, crowned with a wreath of victory on a dazzling white horse. He goes out to conquer his enemies and his conquest is sure. All governments who do not submit to this king are doomed. All institutions that do not fall in line behind this king will fail. Everyone must recognize that our God is a man of war who accepts nothing less than absolute dominion over all creation. Isn't that what Miriam sang? Didn't, didn't Miriam sing, Yahweh is a man of war? Yahweh is his name. She sang Pharaoh's chariots in his army. He is cast into the sea. Miriam didn't shy away from saying, Yahweh's a man of war. I'm serious. This is real. He is really uh, a man of war. So Jesus uh, takes up this mantle. And that means that everyone and everything and every power uh, and authority and structure and identity will either submit to his rule or will be destroyed by him. Now, every time I, I am so, I, I, I still need to detox. So I, 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 uh, uh, I I'm, I'm jealous of you who don't have to do that. But whenever I, whenever I think in these terms, there's this little piece of me that says, oh, wait a minute, can we say that? 
can we say that Jesus is a conqueror, that Jesus is a, is a man of war? Because I have so imbibed for so much of my life uh, kind of this saccharine, uh, 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 sentimental view of, of Jesus that w- would not be described in these conquering terms, right? Is not described as a man of war who looks at this and so many commentators, I read as many commentators as I can get my hands on, good and bad, every week when I approach a passage of scripture to say, is there anything I'm missing? Is there anything I'm leaving out? And so many conquerors get into, I'm sorry, so many uh, commentators who are not conquerors, so many commentators get indigestion over the suggestion that this is Jesus because this is not Jesus. They say he can't be, he can't be a conqueror. He comes, to, he comes to love. Did he not say, I come not with peace, but with a sword? I send a sword. Did he not say that? And so um, would you prefer to serve a king that, that lets his enemies work mischief and wreak havoc and foment chaos and undermine everything he does and oppress and kill and cheat and steal while he looks the other way? Is that the king that you would prefer? Or would you rather serve a king that says, you know what, all that nonsense has an expiration date. All the wickedness and all the idolatry is coming to an end. And I, the king says, I am going to put a stop to it personally. And not only am I going to take care of all the wickedness that is in the world, I'm going to take care of your sins too every one of them. And I'm not going to leave any threads hanging. I'm not going to leave anything behind. You see, that's why the conquest of Canaan shouldn't give us ulcers. We shouldn't pull out our hair and say, oh, how could God do this? It's because he's showing us that he is a God who is a man of war, who is serious about sin, and he is not going to let one, one shred of it remain. He is going to conquer it completely and fully. That's the kind of king I need over my sins. I don't know about you. That's the kind of king I need over me. I want a king who will put to death my sins, not to turn his, his eye and just say, ah, that's fine. You figure that out on your own. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can deal with that. I, I want to be merciful and I want to be patient and I don't want to deal with No, I need King, King Jesus. Wipe me out. Treat my sins like you treated the Canaanites. Treat me like someone who needs to put to death his sins. I want a king to conquer me. That's why I don't have a problem saying Jesus is going to conquer the world because I don't want him to conquer me. I don't want anything left over. So it's not mean-spirited or hateful to talk about Jesus this way because I'm being conquered by him and I'm pretty happy about it. I'm I'm pretty, I, I don't have any complaints about being conquered by this king. And so he takes the white horse and he rides out in conquest. And then he opens the second seal. Verse three, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see another horse, fiery and red went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. The second horse brings war to the land. How does he do it? He simply withdraws peace. He doesn't have to provoke the people to fight each other. He just takes away his spirit, which restrains the wickedness of men. And this is why there are no conspiracies or alliances of the wicked that can hold together for very long. It's because men right under the surface are always at war with each other. They're always sitting on a powder keg ready to go off. And so all that he has to do is just withdraw his peace and let them alone. And they devour each other. They destroy each other. They're always at war. 
Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and, I, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The black horse brings famine to this civilization, which is under God's judgment. But it's a very selective famine on the wheat and the barley. There's a shortage of grain for bread. Now, as best as we understand the coinage and the economy of the time, this represents about 1,000% inflation. Uh, this, this is about 1,000% inflation. The prices are so high, it's a hardship to feed your family. But here's what's curious about this. The vines are fine. The, the, the olive trees are fine. We still have oil and we still have wine. You just don't have any bread to dip in the oil. You don't have anything to fry in the oil. You don't have anything to drink with your wine. You see, if the oil dried up, we'd be okay. We still have bread. If the wine dries up, well, we could survive. Not happily, but we could survive. We could make it. But the writer is forbidden to take either of those. He can't take the wine. He can't take the oil. Now, this, this could be a symbolic uh, promise and message embedded in this because often throughout the scriptures and in the Psalms particularly in the Proverbs too, the righteous are associated with oil and with wine. So this might be a promise of preservation for the righteous. The voice literally says, do not oppress the oil and the wine. Now, I don't know how you oppress trees and vines, but I know you can oppress people. And so it could be that the people who are the vine people, the people who are the oil people are protected in this, in this judgment. But this curse of the famine is the same one that God warns about back in Deuteronomy and back in Leviticus. If the land tolerates abominations, if they tolerate idolatry, their harvest would be cursed, God says in Deuteronomy. And the land will spew them out, God says in Leviticus. And now all these generations later, Jesus takes up the book of the covenant. He starts to open it, releases its seals, and the curses of these books are falling out onto the land. The promises are coming but also the curses, the judgments of covenant breaking are coming to full and final realization. And that comes uh, uh, even more fully when we see the pale horse, verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death and by the beasts of the field. These four horsemen are not bringing the end of the cosmos. They're not bringing the end of uh, uh, everything, planet Earth, because you see only a fourth of the land and only a fourth of the population is affected. This is a summary of all the covenant curses from Deuteronomy 28, when God vowed to bring upon the land curses and not blessings if the people departed from the covenant. They are being turned over to the authority of death and the grave. They are being devoured by the curse. The ungodly culture perishes through starvation and disease and oppression. And when you're sick and when you're enslaved, you can't exercise dominion. When you're sick and hungry, you can't build anything. You can't sustain anything. Nothing holds together. Everything falls apart. Once again, consistent with Unwin's helpful observations. Let's continue in verse 9. 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Way back in Genesis 4, God asked Cain, where's your brother? What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And here, the blood of the martyrs cry out from beneath the altar. It's curious that they're underneath the altar. Have they been killed? Who, who ministers at the altar but the priest? Have they been killed by the priests? Have the priests killed these martyrs? And here they are under the altar. They're, they're appealing for God for judgment and vengeance. The older brothers of the old covenant have repeated the sin of Cain. And they've killed their younger brothers of the new covenant. Well, who was there under this altar crying out for vengeance? Who was there? Well, at this point in history, Stephen is there. You know what else? John's brother James is there. James was put to death by Herod. James is under there. The ones that Saul breathed out threats and murders and persecutions against, many of them are there. There were others. And they all are under the altar and they cry out, how long? They're safe. They're at rest there in the presence of God, but they're crying out, how long, O Lord? And the answer that they get is you need to rest a little while longer because there's still some martyrs that are going to be added to your number. I'm, I'm not done. There's still going to be more martyrs. And they're given white robes, which is an indication that Jesus acknowledges their purity and that he knows that they're overcomers. Back in, uh, was it um, Sardis, right? Uh, three, yeah, yeah. Um, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot his name out from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So that's what God promised those who overcome, those who, were, who kept themselves pure. And so they're given white robes acknowledging that God approves of their sacrifice, approves of their giving of their lives, but their sacrifice isn't enough uh, by itself to get them into God's presence. It, it's Jesus who brought them up there uh, and who seats them up there. It's only the blood of Jesus that could get them into the, into the presence of the Father. They cry out for vengeance. Again, this isn't mean-spirited. This is not out of place. Their cry for vengeance is approval of what God said he would do to their enemies and against all those who would hurt his people. Everyone who touches his anointed are going to receive judgment and his people are going to be vindicated and receive justice. The godly man despises the work of the reprobate. The godly man praises God for his judgments and his righteousness. And so their cries are just an amen to what God has said he is going to do. And you know, when we sing the Psalms, we're joining with the voices of the martyrs in crying out to God, how long are you going to allow these oppressors and these tyrants to carry out their work? I bet you nobody in Nigeria has a problem with any meanness in the Psalms in this Lord's day. I don't think any Christians in China think Psalm 109 is too mean, is too rough, Psalm 68. I don't think they, I don't think they get queasy. 
I don't think they get ulcers. Oh, we can't, we can't sing that. We're New Testament Christians. It's all peace and love and flowers in your hair. And it has nothing to do with God's judgment. You know what? It has everything to do with God's judgment. When those tyrants touch his anointed. And when we cry out for vengeance and we cry out for justice using the words of the Psalms, we stand with those martyrs under the throne and we stand with those little boys and girls who've lost their mommies and daddies in parts of the world where Christianity is illegal and the church is being persecuted. We are standing with those wives who have lost their husbands, whose husbands have been beheaded for for the name of Jesus, who are starving and naked and homeless. We're standing with them and we're adding our voices to their cries and we're saying, Holy Spirit, bring these prayers up to the throne of God so that he will hear and he will defend. And he knows that we care about what's going on over there. And we care. How do, how do we care? Not because we say, oh, I'm sorry. And we share it on Facebook. That's fine. It's fine to, to get the word out and let everybody know what's going on. I'm not making fun of that at all, but that's not enough. We gotta, we're given the Psalms for that purpose to join our voices with their voices and to say, God, we need you to do something. This is out of hand. This is ridiculous. This is over the top avenge your people. And that's not mean. That's not hateful. That is holy and that is righteous. And that's what God requires of us. Uh, Verse 12. We're going to read this last section. We'll end with this last um, seal. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? God's blessings, his deliverance, his salvation is always spoken of in creation terms. Uh, when, when we read about the work of salvation, we hear about a new light shining. Well, what is that? That's, that's creational. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are his workmanship. We have a tree of life. You see, all, these, all the salvation language is given in, it's couched in creational terms. But God's judgments are spoken of in terms of decreation. God is pulling down and disintegrating the fabric of creation. Here, there are judgments on the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the firmament, the land, and on man. All of the cosmos collapses in on the rebellious society. Their civilization has rejected Jesus, so their whole civilization is being excommunicated. Now, I I always want to say this because, once again, uh, we we read about stars falling and sun going out. We think, oh, that's all got to be in future because that hasn't happened yet. But I want, I want to remind you, and I always take this time to remind you, and forgive me if you're like, yeah, yeah, we get it already, but not all of us get it. We, we still got to get it. We still got to understand it. That the, whenever the Bible talks about heavenly lights going out, we're talking about the political powers. That, that This is, in the Bible's language of symbol, sun, moon, and stars are all governments, 
rulers. God created the heavenly bodies to govern, to rule the day and the night. And so they're always associated with rulers in the Bible. Uh, flags and national symbols always have heavenly bodies on them, sun, moon, stars. These things rule. So when a prophet says the stars are going out and the sun is extinguished, he's saying that the authority structures of the nation are collapsing. The world is not coming to an end, but their world most definitely is coming to an end. And whenever you read that, you're supposed to say, yeah, he's talking about their rulers. He's talking about their government. Uh, in Isaiah 13, you can read, he says all this about Babylon, that the stars of the heaven, their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened uh, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. And when Babylon was conquered in 539, of course, the light of the sun didn't go out at the center of our solar system, but the lights did go out as far as Babylon was concerned. You see, so whenever the, these things are said, it's talking about the, the government, the structure, the institution, the society is being darkened. Sun, moon, and stars are also given by God to be our clock. They are for signs and seasons and days and years. So if the stars fall and the sun and moon go out for a civilization, that means their clock is stopped. The last page of their history has been written. Time is up. There's no more snooze button to hit. It's over. So, so what does everyone do when they see that their world is finally coming to an end as the sixth seal is opened? When they see that their world is folding in on itself, when Jesus comes in judgment as he promised, they hide themselves in the caves and the rocks. How's that going to work out? What's that going to do for you to hide by the way, remember when Jesus was on the way to the cross and the women were weeping, he told the women, he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. The day is coming when they're going to say to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. And he said that to the women who are crying on the way to the cross. He says, your children are going to say this. That's another chronological connection between what's going on in Revelation 6 and what happened at the end of Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus said, this is for your generation. So they run to the caves to escape judgment. They run there to preserve their lives. They could have preserved their lives if only they had given up their lives and submitted to Jesus. But going to the caves is not going to preserve you. It's not going to hide you from the all-seeing eyes of the Lamb. That's not going to put you behind, beyond His reach. He's the King of the whole earth. He's the King of the deepest part of the sea. He's the King of the heavens above. And He's the King of the caves. And you can't get away from Him. What's more is that Jesus has power over the caves. He's not afraid of the caves. He meets the demon-possessed man in the caves and he casts out his demons. He goes down to the caves and he calls dead Lazarus out of the cave. Jesus has been in a cave himself, buried in a cave, and he found the escape hatch. He knows all about caves. He knows all about them. They're looking for safety. They're going into the caves for a covering. They're looking for something to stand between them and the reality of standing face to face with a God whose son they have rejected and crucified. And there is no covering. There is no protection. They say, hide us from the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Lambs aren't normally wrathful. Have you ever seen a hot-tempered lamb? <laughs> Have you ever been in a, like a petting zoo and said, man, that lamb is a jerk? <laughs> what are they talking about? Jesus is the lamb of God who's riding out in judgment against his enemies. But he's still a lamb. 
He's still the sacrifice. He is still their salvation. He is the one who lays down his life. He is the dearest and kindest and most compassionate friend of sufferers and sinners who enters into our griefs and sorrows. And they are terrified of him. The unbelievers, the idolaters, the covenant breakers, and the rebels are hiding from the anger of a lamb. That just shows you their confusion and ignorance and unbelief. And see, all of this destruction and all of this collapse is what we're asking for when we reject God's wisdom and his order and his law. And I'm not even talking about nationally. I'm not talking about culturally. I'm not talking about other people's sins. I'm not talking about other people's problems. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about our lives, our families, our church. Know this, that if we break covenant, if we stop trusting, if we stop caring about what God says, we put ourselves in the category of God's enemies. And this, after a time, and it only takes a couple generations, after a time, this is what happens to God's enemies. Desolation, rubble, decreation. And it seems that we exercise far more fear about things that don't matter than about the reality that we will all come face to face with a holy and righteous God. I can't tell you whether you're going to contract uh, some, some weird virus that we don't have any control over. I can't tell you if you're going to get this cold or whatever the media is hyping everyone into frenzy over and everybody is preparing for. I can't tell you whether you're going to get that. I can tell you with 100% certainty that you are going to face this rider on this horse. 100% certainty. And have we put as much urgency and as much care and as much fear into meeting him as we have anything else? Have we prepared for this as much as we've prepared anything else in our lives? He comes with a sword of iron. He comes with the sword of the Spirit. If you're not slain by the sword of the Spirit and resurrected to new life in Him, then you'll be slain by the sword of iron to never live again to eternal death. You have, you have this, these ways before you. So trust in Him. Confess your sins. Lay them before Him. He knows about it. He knows what's in the caves. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's there. Lay it before Him. He knows about it. So confess it and spread it before Him. And be forgiven, receive, receive forgiveness of your sins and be conquered by this rider on this white horse and have life. Be delivered from destruction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our king who rides out in, in vengeance to conquer his enemies. We pray uh, uh, that, that he would do this for all of us, that he would conquer us completely, that there would be nothing left out, nothing left behind that we would be in full submission to him. Father, continue this work over us. And then as it extends out to our society, to our civilization, we rejoice in his heavenly rule over all things. So may we see this more and more in our day, in our generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.